1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist. My name's Chris Smith and welcome to our Q&A special. This week we're looking at the latest news including the Heartbleed computer bug, what is it? And the UK's first ever cloned dog. How did that happen? Plus the answers to your science questions. We've got a stellar lineup of scientists here to answer them for you. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And let's find out who they are. So sitting immediately to my left, Helen Scales. Helen, welcome to the programme. Tell us a bit about you.
2: Hello, thanks for having me on. I am a marine biologist and a conservationist. So for me, it's all about what fascinates me down beneath the waves and also what worries me about the state of the oceans and the fact that we're throwing too much into them and taking too much back out of them as well.
1: So and you're also an author. I am, you're yes. writing a book right now?
2: I am writing a book. My second book, my first one, was about seahorses, which are my favourite fish in the sea because they are wonderful. I'm now turning my attention to a larger group of animals, but I am writing about seashells and the creatures that make them and the relationships that people have had with them for, well, basically forever, actually. It's amazing how far back in time the history of people using and eating mollusks that make seashells goes, and it's really fascinating. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment.
1: Ramsey, Ramsey Farrago from the Computer Sciences Department at Cambridge University. Welcome. Thanks. So I'm a physicist, engineer and
3: scientist, and I work on how we sense the world and navigate the world. So predominantly I'm interested in finding... Stuff around us that is naturally part of our environment and using it to either see the world or navigate the world. So magnetic fields, yes, gravitational field, mobile phone signals, you name it. And I try and figure out ways of either seeing the world with it or working out where I am in
1: the world with it. So basically how things like mobile phone localization, Wi-Fi, GPS, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. OK, thank you very much. Sitting next to Ramsey from the Institute of Physics Space Scientist, Tamla Massiel. Hello, Tamla. Hello. Tell us a bit about you.
4: So I am currently very busily writing up my, my PhD thesis, looking at jets of plasma shooting out from the areas around black holes. Really exotic stuff, although I tend to find myself here actually talking about exoplanets most of the time.
1: What's an exoplanet?
4: An exoplanet. So that's something that's not part of our solar system. It's orbiting around another star, or even a rogue planet just sitting there by itself, very lonely. So really fascinating stuff and and really a new frontier in astronomy at the moment.
1: Tamala, thank you. So anything space science, that's going Tamala's way. And sitting next to her, Hannah Critchlow. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Chris. Tell us a bit about you.
4: So Tamala
5: looks to the skies for her inspiration for the big science questions. I look into the mind so the big enigma of our mind and our brain that's the thing that i'm really interested in i've got a background in neuroscience neuropsychiatry and I'm, I'm very interested to hear your questions about your mind and your brains
1: if you would like to get in touch with everyone thank you hannah then you can email chris at com. you can also tweet at naked Scientist. we've also got a facebook page facebook.com slash Scientist. lots of questions coming in on there peter's called in hello peter
3: hi hi chris shoot Oh, yeah. Um, and Lindy did an experiment where they isolated the pleasure receptors in the brains of rats. Um, they've enabled the rats to stimulate themselves, basically, by pressing a button. I was wondering if that constituted as addiction, because the rats could, well, they just gave up food and basically kept pressing this button until they died.
5: Oh, well, yeah, there are a lot of scientists that work on rodents, rats and mice with this kind of lever pressing paradigm or task. And you can, for example, stimulate a rat to continue pressing a lever or a button if you give them a nice little reward. And that might be a nice food treat, for example, or it might be a drug of addiction, a drug of choice. And for the rats, they particularly like cocaine, and also heroin and even ethanol alcohol. And um, Actually, 20% of rats will compulsively continue to press this lever in a way that will then deliver these drugs even if the rat will then receive an electric, a very mild electric shock. So even if there's adverse ramifications of pressing this lever, 20% of rats will um, want to continually get cocaine or heroin or ethanol in order to stimulate the reward centre of the brain, the nucleus accumbens it's called, and it causes this release of dopamine, this flush of dopamine, this flush of reward and pleasure in the brain of the rats. I was going to
1: say, why do they find it pleasurable? When they put this electrode in this part of the brain... As Peter's saying, why do the rats find that pleasant...
5: Well, it's because we've all evolved to feel pleasure. I mean, it's part of the things that drive us to success and to succeed as a species. We have to feel pleasure and feel reward and feel motivation for things. And so drugs of abuse and also this electric shock kind of thing that you can do will actually stimulate this reward and pleasure pathway. And interestingly, 20% of humans will actually go towards more this compulsive behaviour and also um, kind of go towards adverse ramifications of drug abuse, for example... Um, and seeking drugs of abuse. And so Ramsey. that also taps into that system. Ramsey. So, is this helping us to learn about how to treat
3: addiction in humans?
5: Yeah, so this is why scientists are so interested in it. So they're actually trying to find the genetic basis for this. Why there's there's this conserved twenty percent of both rodent and also human populations that seem to be keen on tapping into this kind of reward motivation pathway in the brain. And there's other animals as well in the world that um, seem to exhibit this kind of interest in reward and um, pleasure. So, for example, I was in uh, New Zealand recently, and there was these tui birds that are these beautiful iridescent magpie type birds, and they like drinking or supping on this flax fermented flower juice and that gets them quite tipsy and then they soar around in this tipsy way so yeah it's not just rats it's not just humans it's also other birds and animals pete does that answer the question
1: so basically it it does constitute an addiction it's tapping into the same center in the brain that that illegal drugs do all right cool thank you for that now uh, a little bird told me that you also have another question uh, which relates to certain bodily functions that you wanted to ask
3: Why does someone's air biscuit, or the technical term, flatulence? Why why does that smell bad from someone else, and it's not so bad when you smell your
5: own? Well, I would say that my farts really are quite stinky, even to myself. And I asked my boyfriend about this, and he agreed. But he said that his his own farts he found curiously pleasant (laughs) was his expression. Is that the
1: universal? (laughs) Is everyone universally in in agreement here in the studio?
5: Not about my farts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think
2: it's particularly bad if it's someone else's because it's more the thought really that it's not come out of yourself mm. your own body. And maybe does it is it a similar thing to other sorts of bodily fluids like like I don't know mothers get very used to their children's puke and poo and all sorts of things, because they kind of have to. But if it was another child's puke and poo, I presume they wouldn't be quite so pleased <laughs> at so getting like, close
5: to it. Is that They have done scientific studies on farts and also um, babies' poo. And in a blind study, mothers find their own children's poo more pleasant smelling than other children's poo. And the same can be said of people's farts. So just imagining the smell of your own fart, people rate it as OK. But um, if you ask to imagine the smell of anyone else's fart, then yeah, they think it's disgusting. And it's... Possibly. Sorry, Chris. I was going to say,
1: say? Uh, one theory I heard of this is that one person pointed out to me that one possibility is that the gases that you're going to release don't just come out of you, out of your rear end. They also, effectively, those volatile chemicals go into your bloodstream. A bit, And that means they get carried up to the receptors in your nose via your bloodstream and they desensitise the receptors in your nose a little bit. You effectively get used to the smells you're going to make. And this means that because you've been smelling it already, it doesn't smell quite as offensive to you because it's less new to you compared with Mm. someone else who's having to put up with it for the first time.
3: Ramsey. Uh, well, similarly, Chris, I believe that our sense of smell is relative, so we get used to smells, in other words. So when you come home from holiday and you open your door to your house and you sort of think, oh, it smells a bit musty, you know, I've got to go and open some windows. It might not actually be a musty house at all. That is the smell of your home. You just normally get used to it. And I think we all probably know people who we think smell a lot like their dogs or generally smell a bit funny in general. And you kind of think, how does this person not notice they're a bit smelly? Well, we all get used to our own smells and, and it's because it's a relative
1: sense that we have. Thank you very much, Peter, for the question. If you'd like to ask us any questions, hopefully something less whiffy next time, you can give us an email, chris at scientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Tamela, here's one from you, from Paul Weston, who says, why are planets round? Why not other shapes?
4: Well, that's a great question. Comes back to this idea that, well, this knowledge that um, gravity is a central force, it's acting radially inwards and pulling mass, anything with mass towards its center of mass. So to go back to the the formation of planets, we expect that stars and planets would have condensed and collapsed down from these massive clouds of of gas and dust, um, these nebulas. As they were collapsing, they were attracting other bits of matter. And the natural equilibrium state is for everything to be as close to that center as possible and to be in a sphere, right? It wants to be equidistant in a sense. Bigger objects have more mass and that strength of gravity is is greater, so it really starts to smooth out the surface. A smaller object might be a cube and the material properties of that cube can keep it up without gravity pulling it into a sphere.
1: It's a bit like raindrops, I suppose, isn't it? Because you've got a droplet of rain coming down. If it can, it forms a sphere, but then it sort of smears out a bit with the air current pushing it. It's the same sort of phenomenon, the water sticky pulling itself together.
4: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Tamara, thanks very much. Let's have a chat to Catherine, who's on the phone. Hello, Catherine. Hello. What can we do for you?
4: Um, yeah,
5: I've got a question. I know genes can affect how we act, but could how we act affect our genes or even our DNA?
1: So in other words, what we do with our lives or during our working day, does that have a cha- an impact on our DNA? Yes. Well, the answer is absolutely it does, yeah. Um, There's a number of different ways in which this may happen. If you think about it, I don't know if you go to the gym, but if you go training, you know what happens to your muscles? Yeah. They get bigger, right? Yeah. Well, if they're getting bigger, they're growing. And if they're growing, they must be producing more of the tissue in a muscle that makes you strong. These are the contractile filaments, actin and myosin. Well, those are proteins, and they get made by turning on a gene that tells the cell how to make them. So in response to training, in other words, activity, you trigger more genes to get turned on in your muscle cells to make more of the bulk of your muscle. Mm -hmm. So there's one really good example of immediately how one of your actions affects your DNA. It affects how active bits of your DNA are. Another example might be, for instance, in your brain. Mm-hmm. Because we know for a fact that when you're uh, subject to certain stresses and strains, or as you grow up, then your brain changes its shape and it puts out connections from one set of cells to another set of cells. Those are controlled by genes. Yeah. And in response to certain long term stresses, we know that certain cells change their behavior and they yeah. uh, upregulate or downregulate, in other words, increase or decrease the production of certain nerve transmitter chemicals. Again, this is a change in response to your activity. And then there's the real kind of far end of the the spectrum, which is something we talked about last week on the programme. We talked to Marcus Pembry, who's from Bristol, and he did a study looking at fathers who started smoking before the age of 11, and they followed up their children. And they found that the sons of those men who started smoking very early were much more likely to become obese in later life compared to individuals who started smoking later and the fathers themselves who were in the study were not obese. So we couldn't argue it was just something that was a background genetic effect. It seems like there is something changing in the DNA passed on to those offspring from the fathers who smoke in response to their smoking habit, mm. and one possibility is it 's a phenomenon called epigenetics and this is where the DNA itself doesn 't change, mm. but there are chemical markers added to the outside of the DNA almost like signposts yeah. that can turn genes on or off mm. or turn the amount that a gene is turned on up or down, and this has an effect and so it may be that that this uh, smoking habit had the effect on certain genes linked to growth in those oh. children so the answer to your question is absolutely and there are some good examples oh
5: that's wonderful thank you so much
1: thanks for joining us on the program
5: thank you
1: you're listening to the naked scientist with chris smith with hannah critchlow tamila maseel ramsey farragher and helen scales and it's our science q a show any science question goes and if you'd like to send in a question you can do that anytime to chris at thenakedscientist.com Helen Scales, one for you. Paul Jen says, how many trees to combat climate change? Are you aware if someone's actually done a back of an envelope calculation or a napkin, if you like, to see how many trees are needed to stop the rise in carbon dioxide concentration? And that's a very similar question to one asked by Rosemary Bunnage, who said, how many trees do I need in my garden to balance the pollution from vehicles which drive near her house? What do you think?
2: Really great questions. Actually, slightly different. In fact, we're talking about different types of pollutants, the first being carbon and dioxide linked to climate change and then after that really other types of pollutant which I'll come to in a second but when it comes to climate change yes back of the envelope calculations there's lots of variables um, when it comes to figuring out how much carbon is stored in the short medium and long term in forests I mean the general idea being that if you've got enormous trees the wood and the carbon inside that is carbon that would be otherwise be in the atmosphere a kind of very basic idea to bear in mind is that it's thought that about 50% of the dry biomass, the dry weight, if you take the water out of a tree, out of plants, about half of that is carbon. And you can translate a tonne of carbon stored inside a tree to about 3.6 tonnes of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, roughly. And then, you know, if you want to do a back of the envelope, I believe that last year, 36 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide were put into the atmosphere just from burning fossil fuels. So it's a lot of trees. I did find one... study which i thought really kind of nailed home just how many trees we would need if we were going to do this and this was based on uk emissions only and this was a few years ago but i think we can get a good idea from this just cars we would need to if we wanted to offset just the emissions from cars in the uk we would need to plant between 3 and 12 million hectares of woodland depending on which species because that that matters currently there's only 2.5 million hectares of forest in the uk and 23 million hectares of land if we wanted to set, offset all our emissions in the UK, we would basically need two Britons. We don't have enough space. We would need to plant about 50 million hectares of conifers in plantations to fix that carbon. So it's a lot of trees.
1: That is an awesome number of trees
2: it I wouldn't have thought it was as big as that it is huge and there are a lot of trees in the world and a lot, of them, a lot of carbon is fixed inside those forests which is another important point which is apart from just planting new trees we also have to try and stop cutting down the ones we've got because that also releases a huge amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and also trees that grow at the edge of the oceans mangroves are very important stores of carbon natural carbon stores so we should be thinking about replanting those areas of habitat as well
1: what about your favourite places though Helen the oceans? Because don't they account for a disproportionate amount of the CO2 pulled down in the form of marine plants, algae? Um,
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, it's about half, actually. Half of the productivity, if you like, the photosynthesis that grabs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and makes it into organic molecules, half of that happens in the ocean, half of that happens on land, in forests and grasslands and so on. So the oceans are enormously important. And also, carbon dioxide just dissolves in the ocean. And if that hadn't happened and if the oceans weren't there, climate change would already be enormously worse because there would just would be much more calmed up already in the atmosphere
1: thanks Helen. if you have any comments questions feedback or thoughts for us then do drop us a line you can tweet at naked scientists you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash the naked scientists jet lag now now if you've ever traveled across time zones you know only too well how disabling it is when you arrive in that new time zone and you have to think and work or at least enjoy your holiday is there a better way to get over jet lag than what scientists say should take about one day per time zone to recover? Well, Danny Forger, who's a computational biologist at the University of Michigan, has got a computer program which he says will help us to do just that. Hello, Danny. Hi. How does this work?
0: The app that we've just released, we used mathematics to calculate the quickest way to get an individual from one time zone to another. And so the app puts this research in the hands of individuals.
1: First of all, tell us, how does the maths mimic what's happening in a real body?
0: So this is something that I've been working on for many years. In fact, I started working on this when I was an undergraduate at Harvard. And there were a lot of experiments that were going on testing human circadian rhythms. So they would bring humans into a sleep lab and shine light on them and see how light affected their circadian clock. Light is the most important signal to your circadian clock. It's so important that in your eyes, there are actually specialized cells separate from rods and cones that sense light and send that information to your circadian clock. So there was a lot of data, in particular what was great about it was it was human data, where they gave individuals different pulses of light. And what we did was we put this all together into a mathematical model that we were able to show was able to reproduce this data.
1: So you've effectively built the human body clock in a computer.
0: Exactly. And how the model works is you give it a schedule and then it will say, well, at this particular time, you're not quite over your jet lag or at this time you happen to be in Jakarta, but uh, your clock is back in Tokyo. What's significant about the paper that just came out in PLOS computational biology is that we were able to answer the reverse problem. Rather than saying, here's a schedule and let's test it, we are able to say, of all possible schedules, which ones will get you from one time zone to the next in the quickest way possible.
1: In other words, were I to depart from Heathrow today and head to Sydney and therefore flip my body clock by, at the moment, about nine hours – then what would I have to do when I get to Sydney to get myself feeling right and functioning best in the least possible time?
0: So... Let me start with what people thought you would have to do. We thought that the answer to this problem was going to be extremely complicated. Something along the lines of, at 4 o'clock you would have to get 100 lux of light, at 4.45 you'd have to get 500 lux of light, and that's really difficult, if not impossible, to do. Except for a certain very specialized people, like Olympians, for example, or classical musicians. But the math actually came up with a very simple answer to this. And actually it showed that that simple answer was better than anything else you could do basically all you want to do is control when each day you start getting light and when you start getting light we'd suggest you get as much light as possible during that period and when you should stop getting light so basically just by controlling your dusk and dawn you could get to the new time zone as quick as possible
1: does it work that's the key thing
0: Again, we know certain facts. We know that the model represents this human data very well and is being used a lot. And we know mathematically that these schedules are optimal. But again, I do think that we do need some more testing of this. In particular... All the work that's been proposed thus far is all based on laboratory studies, and what could be happening in the real world is quite different. And also to test one individual schedule could cost you know hundreds of thousands of American dollars or British pounds and take years. And we have thousands of possible schedules if you think about all the possible permutations you could go through and all the possible light levels. So that's part of the point of the app. The app is released for free. It gives you the access to the waiting research. It actually simulates these models on the iPhone to predict where your circadian clock is. And it also pulls up the optimal schedules to give you a suggestion of what to do. And after doing this, you had the option of sending back your schedule and also evaluating it anonymously to the University of Michigan. So that's how we're going to test it. All I could say, though, is that this is the best answer we have right now.
1: We look forward to welcoming you back in a year or so when you've got all the data and you can tell us if it works. Danny Forger, thank you very much. published that paper this week in the journal PLOS Computational Biology. You're listening to the Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Ramsey Farragher, Tamala Maciel, and Hannah Critchlow in the studio this week answering your science questions. If you'd like to get in touch with us, tweet at Naked Scientists or email Chris at thenakedscientist.com We have got Jerry on the line. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Chris. You've got a question. Uh, I think this is probably one for Hannah.
3: Yeah, I have. And um, as I've got older, I need to wear glasses for reading, but I always try to keep the magnification I use to the absolute minimum. A year ago, my wife insisted I had my first eye test. Even though I don't legally have to, the optician recommended I use glasses for driving. I bought the distance glasses, but noticed that after using them on a long drive, my vision with no glasses seems to be worse. Put simply, does wearing glasses for reading or distance make your vision deteriorate? And is there anything that can be done to help?
5: Great question, Jerry, and it's one that many people ask. So quite a lot of eye conditions are diagnosed in teenage years. So you'll see a lot of teenagers starting to wear glasses in their early adolescence. And then they might find that their prescription changes and their eyesight is actually decreasing. And they might be thinking, well, hang on a second, are the glasses actually making my eyesight worse? What seems to be the case, actually, is that their eyes are still developing and the way that they focus light onto the retina at the back of the eye, which helps to um, make sure that they can see things in a clear way so it's not blurry for either short-sightedness or long-sightedness. That lens is still developing and still changing in the eye all the way through to about probably the mid-20s along with the rest of the brain. And so the teenagers aren't seeing that the glasses are actually changing their prescription, it's that their eyes are actually changing and therefore that's why their prescription might be worse. What Jerry's talking about is probably that he's got a condition called presbyopia, and that's where the lens gets slightly stiffer, possibly age-related, so it becomes stiffer with age. And so, Jerry, your eyesight might be deteriorating slightly with age, and there's things that you can do that might help that, and that's eye exercises. That's something that I actually do every day. I try to do it. For example, I'll have an imaginary clock in my head. And I'll take it in turns to one eye at a time, but I'll make my eyes go through the clock, so from 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, all the way around the dial and back again. And then I'll start exercising exercising my eye muscles by looking at things that are close to me and then far away to keep that muscle working? I hope that answers your question, Jerry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very
1: good question uh, because a lot of people say I started wearing glasses and then my eyesight got a lot worse. And I don't know, I'm wearing glasses, Ramsey's wearing glasses. Is that your experience? Um, yeah, I think part
3: of it might be, again, this kind of um, relative behaviour that we have, that your eyes start getting used to the fact that they don't have to work as hard when uh, you've got Uh, lenses on but I suppose it's very hard to tell because if you're going through the process of losing your eyesight then after a year and you take your glasses
1: off and you go, oh my it's even worse. Than yeah, because that, well, that was going to yes. be my point. That um, <laughs> um, when I was growing up, obviously along with many people, I started wearing glasses in my teenage years. I don't know if it was that your experience, Helen. As well, uh,
2: yes, I was doing my A levels. I remember yeah. I couldn't read the clock when I was looking up from doing work. I think that was another thing: is, is is reading and looking at close screens does that make your eyesight worse? And I've been told no. It was if it's going to get bad, it's going to get bad. And maybe you get bad quicker, but it would have happened anyway.
1: Well, exactly. And if at that time in your life the same processes of development which are making you become short-sighted, for example, are still going on, when you put the glasses on, obviously you see better... But then the process is still continuing along underneath that, so your vision continues to deteriorate, and then you think, "Oh, I've got these glasses. It was all right, but now look, it seems to be getting worse, and actually it's the same deterioration you were going to get. And once people get a little bit older, then their vision settles down, and they stop getting the deterioration. My, my lens prescription changed when I was a teenager, but then it stopped changing, and it's been the same for many years ever since Tamla
4: well, I, I have a question for you, maybe I've been very short-sighted since I was about eleven. I had to get glasses, and I thought maybe it was because I was reading a lot as a child. But I have two younger sisters, and they are both about the same age, needed glasses, and my mother as well. And I was wondering if it's genetic. Do we know this? or
1: There is an element of that. People have found yeah. this runs in families. But the really interesting thing is if you look at populations in Singapore and you look at individuals in China, the Chinese are now putting on their desks at school, bars, so the kids can't get their heads close to their work. Because we know there's an association between a lot of close work and not developing distance vision in young kids. And Singapore has a really big problem with their military. They were struggling to recruit people who had good vision. So it might be there is a genetic effect and that genetic effect manifests when you give it the chance to. In other words, if you are genetically predisposed to get short sight, and then you do a lot of close work, and you don't force your eyes to develop a longer capacity, you might then become short sighted. So I don't think it's as simple as saying my dad's short sighted, therefore I will be it might be a sort of loading the dice a little tiny bit. Ramsey, here's a question for you. Oskiveres has emailed and said, Why are number plates in my rear view mirror the wrong way? round why are they back to front the trees look right but the number plates look back to front why is that <laughs> well it's a great and potentially tricky question
3: um so certainly everything is the wrong way around so trees and buildings have fantastic symmetry so it's hard to glance at a tree and determine if you're seeing it the right way round or its reflection text are obviously extremely good at uh, looking at and recognizing instantly if it's the wrong way round or not and the big reason is basically the difference between a reflection and rotational symmetry. So, if I stood in front of my identical twin brother, who doesn't exist, for the purpose of this, he does. If I stood in front of an identical twin brother of me and I held out my right hand to shake my right hand, he would go through the same motion, hold out his right hand, our arms would cross in front of us and we would shake hands. And to all intents and purposes, we'd done the same thing. We'd both used our right hands. But if I tried to do this with my reflection in a mirror and I put my right hand out my reflection in the mirror would appear to put out its left hand and we couldn't possibly shake hands we'd be holding the wrong hands out and that is basically the crux of the difference when the text that you look at in a mirror is presented back to you you're sort of looking at the back of it you're looking at its reflection not its 180 degree rotation in space which is what you really need in order to read it properly. So it's the big difference between a reflection and a rotation. And mirrors reflect, but we need that text to be
1: rotated rather than reflected to read it properly. Thank you, Ramsey. Helen, Abel Kapoor Christian has sent in an email and says, Why do plants close their leaves or petals at night time?
2: That's a lovely question and the word for it is nictinasty is the word for plants that close their leaves and their petals sometimes at night and they do it in different ways it's rather nice um, I don't know if you've ever seen clover um, if you went out and looked at some clover at night you would see that they've raised their little leaflets up and pressed them together and other plants fold them downwards we've already talked today a bit about light and how that affects organisms and this plants also respond to light they have a circadian rhythm a body rhythm an internal clock if you like and this does seem to have an effect on how they hold themselves and the kind of the nuts and bolts of how it happens is a little thing, a joint like organ at the base of the leaves, um, that's called the pulvini, they're basically little little blobs of cells and these can change shape based on the pumping of ions, so potassium and chloride ions get pumped in and out of different parts of these little, little organs and then because of osmosis water then shunts backwards and forwards and either pops these leaves up or squashes them back down again and they seem and that that movement of those ions is affected by blue light in the daytime and by red light, which happens at more kind of dusk time and into the night. And we think it happens, probably, to protect themselves from getting cold. And um, and in other cases, there are plants, have you ever come across this fantastic thing in the tropics called sensitive shy grass? And if you touch it, it collapses instantly. And it's the same organ that's doing this, the pulvini is the same sort of reason it's happening, but they respond to touch rather than to light. And they're really fun. So if you ever find them, you flick them and they just all collapse down and they think that's so they don't get eaten by herbivores that come along.
1: Helen, thanks. Let's have a quick chat to... Derek is on the line. Hello, Derek. Hello. Far away. Um, right, I, I'm
3: looking for an update on a story that was huge about 16 or 17 years ago. Um, there was a, a meteorite found in Antarctica called it ALH 84001, which was of type that, that was sure came from Mars, but found in its structures which were been interpreted as microbacteria. So obviously it was all very exciting suggesting that there was life on Mars and then there were papers over the coming sort of months or whatever that said well no it's contamination or it's not biological or whatever but largely it's fallen out in recent years of the public eye and it's such an exciting story about life on Mars potentially that I I just wondered where
1: we're up to with it. Tamala, where has the story of the meteorite with life in it from Mars gone? It has indeed evaporated, hasn't it? We've heard nothing for a long time.
4: I think people can be forgiven for being a bit inconclusive about this because it's just disappeared. So Derek's given a nice background to this story. So basically in 1996 there was this paper that was published by a NASA scientist and he had found these sort of nanometer scale, chain-like structures on top of this meteorite, maybe slightly embedded as well, and interpreted as fossils of bacteria. One of the first criticisms, well, um, these are a much smaller scale than any kind of bacteria that we see here on Earth. So how how can they possibly exist on these nanoscale things? And maybe that's got around by the fact that Mars has a very different sort of chemistry or, or something exotic like that. It created a lot of excitement, particularly because they thought that this meteorite formed on Mars during a period when water existed on Mars. And we we have a lot of evidence to suggest that this is true, that there were liquid oceans or rivers or something on Mars at some point, but ages ago, 4 billion years ago or so. And this is particularly interesting because if it was with water and now it's here and maybe some evidence of fossils, maybe we found life. And I think even Bill Clinton at this time alluded to it, and it was a huge discovery Today, there's no consensus that this is actually definitive evidence of life. And, and unfortunately, we don't have that evidence of any kind of life outside of planet Earth, um, past or present. I think one of the, um, the main arguments against it was there's these magnetite crystals that have formed. And at the time, we only knew of these being formed by biological processes from little microorganisms that deposit these minerals But in the early 2000s, they were able to replicate these crystals in a lab study without any kind of organic input. And as soon as you can do that, people are inconclusive. So sadly, we're withholding judgment until further data comes along.
1: Thank you, Tamela. So there you have it, Um, Derek. It looks like the answer is that at the moment, because those same particles or similar ones can be made in a laboratory, people are not willing to believe they're bacterial.
0: Mm. Oh, that's a shame. It'd be nice (laughs) if it was positive,
1: wouldn't it? Indeed, but thank you for reminding us of the issue because it it was a huge story that just evaporated and I was indeed wondering what had happened, so thank you for that, Tamala. Hannah, tell us about
5: Britain's first cloned dog. What's the story there? So this week it has been announced that um, a sausage dog has been cloned thanks to a company called Soam Biotech in Seoul. So there was a competition earlier in the year and Rebecca Smith, who's a caterer based in West London, won the competition. And so she uh, sent off some samples from her 12-year-old sausage dog, some skin cells from the pet, and um, sent them over to Korea where they got a donor egg from another dog and they took the DNA, the nucleus, out of this donor egg, and then they added the DNA from Rebecca's 12-year-old sausage dog's ear skin cell, applied a mild electric shock, and then inserted this egg with the new DNA from the sausage dog into a surrogate mother and then the clone was produced it was announced this week what Um, was the price tag the price tag so apparently they're going to be trying to sell these clone dogs for up to sixty thousand great british pounds to uk dog lovers and in fact apparently there's 500 dog owners from around the world that are lined up to pay this type of money in order to try and recreate a clone of their beloved pet Helen, you're shaking your head at Wonder <laughs> at this story.
2: I get that, you know, we have pets and we love them and wouldn't it be nice for them not to pass away? But this isn't the same. Come on, people. This is crazy. Is that, what, that, we were talking about Do yeah? they ask the
1: lady why she paid £60,000 for so, so, a clone of her pet?
5: Rebecca didn't pay £60,000 she won a competition so she got it for free but I think it was kind of an advertisement to try and get more people to but pay. But have, have
1: it. they asked in making the report other people to see they must think there's a market for it then so who, who is willing to part with that kind of money for a clone?
5: People do, especially the British population, Like we're known for loving our pets but there's a big difference here between a cat or a dog that you love has a particular personality many people will argue and um, you know you get very attached to that particular pet but a clone isn't going to have the same personality, generally speaking. You know, genetically, it might be the same or almost the same. The environment can affect the dog. And also the dog, the puppy, is going to be in quarantine in Korea for the first six months because of UK legislation before it's brought into the UK. So therefore, the first six months are going to be in Korea and it's probably not going to have the same upbringing as the puppy that you adore. So you may
1: clone you may get, identical behaving dog you may not get yeah so it's certainly worth bearing in mind thanks very much for that let's go to kevin who's on the phone hello kevin hello what can we do for you
0: uh so i recently was uh diagnosed with uh strep and got put on antibiotics the doctor gave me the usual spiel about well you know it's going to kill bad bacteria as well as the good bacteria so i was thinking well since i'm going to be sort of destroying my gut ecosystem what would it be possible to sort of Do something to repopulate it with maybe even a better one. I've heard a lot of things, you know, bacteria that like to eat meat aren't so good for you, but other ones like to eat veggies are. So, you know, is this a good time to help my health for the longer term?
1: Kevin, it's very interesting you raise this because we're just at the stage now where we can begin to answer these sorts of questions which are really important but it dawned on people about 10 years ago that when we look at the human genome we're ignoring at our peril something which is orders of magnitude more complicated which is our meta genome in other words the genetic contribution made to our health and well-being by the millions and millions of bacteria that live on us and in us and they're all lending us their genetic know-how and they contribute to our health every bit as much as our own DNA does. And when we take antimicrobial agents, like the antibiotics you took for streptococcal throat infection, then this does wipe out many populations of those microbes that naturally live in your intestines, and it upsets the balance. What the consequences of that are varies from person to person, and what the long-term consequences are, at this stage we don't really know. But now scientists are in a position to answer those sorts of questions because we have very powerful DNA technology today that we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. It's now perfectly possible to take samples from individuals before, during and after antibiotic therapy, which is what scientists have now been doing, to read the genetic sequences in there and work out what the genetic fingerprint of the microorganisms that live in someone's intestines and on their skin are and then to see what impact taking antibiotics has on those microbial populations and the evidence is that it makes a very big difference and there's some evidence that it makes an indefinite difference in other words Once you've taken antimicrobial agents, then some bacteria disappear for good from your intestines, and that may have a health consequence. For instance, there are microbes that get lost, which break down a chemical called oxalic acid, and oxalic acid contributes to kidney stones, and it's interesting that people tend to get kidney stones once they reach middle age, and by middle age they've also had a certain number of doses of antibiotic drugs, which makes them much more likely therefore to have wiped out that particular population of bugs so it might be that in the future what we do is either build better antibiotics that are kinder to our native intestinal bugs and leave them alone while treating bad bugs or it sounds rather unpleasant but what we may end up doing is basically banking samples of what lives inside us and then periodically feeding them back to ourselves to keep our gut microflora in tip-top condition because we know that that's really critical to be healthy lovely question though thanks for sending it in ramsey one for you Alan McNamara says, for some time, I've been trying to find an answer to this question. If I charge my mobile device at home, it costs me money on my power bill. But if I recharge it while I'm driving along, using, for instance, my car cigarette lighter, does this cost me money? What do you think? Uh, Well,
3: for starters, it depends who's paying for the petrol, because basically that's what it boils down to. So when you're driving along, any electrical item you run inside your car is running off the alternator or the battery, and the battery is recharged using your petrol when you're driving, and the alternator uses the petrol when you're driving. So when you plug stuff in, your revs go up ever so slightly in a nutshell, and your fuel consumption is affected accordingly. However, a mobile phone costs about 50p to charge over the entire course of the year. So I really wouldn't worry about it. If he wants to save on his electricity costs, he should probably look at things in his home, like his plasma TV, perhaps, which might be £100 over the course of the year. Maybe uh, something like a washer-dryer. The dryer part of a washer-dryer is going to cost many dozens of pounds a year and stuff like that. I think my favourite one is a microwave oven. So the clock on a microwave oven uses more electricity over the course of its lifetime than cooking food does. So if you want your microwave oven to cost the least amount of money... Don't use it as a clock. Just turn it on when you want to use it.
1: Sage advice. Thank you very much, Ramsey. Let's go to Comrade. He's on the phone. Hello, Comrade. Hello. Shoot. Well, um, it's a couple of link questions, really, about um, measuring galaxies and the redshift and their distance from them. It occurred to me that um, my understanding is that all the galaxies are moving away from each other, largely because of the expansion of space itself between them. And I did wonder whether actually some controlling for that expansion might be moving towards each other or not, or away from each other. And of course, to work that out, you'd need to know both the redshift and the distance to the galaxies. So I I know that they use standard candles, at least initially, to find some galaxy measurements, but I don't know if that's all the galaxies have been measured like that or, or not. Tamla, what do you think?
4: So it's, it's a huge question. Um, measuring distances in astronomy is no small feat, and there are huge fields of it dedicated to this. Standard candles is a great method, actually, for galaxies, and this has allows us to tie into our measurements of a redshift and to verify exactly what distance that is. So the way this works is we have a class of objects, say supernova or a type of star, and we think that we understand the physics of it so well, that it has a certain intrinsic luminosity, a certain intrinsic brightness to it when it's there by itself. If we then scale that to a distance away from us, it's going to look dimmer. But because we feel like we understand the physics of it, we can then adjust for that distance. So those are our standard candles. And if we can find one in a faraway galaxy, we can scale it to where we think it should be. The redshift is an interesting thing because this is looking at the spectrum of an astronomical object. And a lot of times we're looking for lines in the spectrum, emission from molecular hydrogen or something like that. And if this is shifted away from the frequency that we expect it to be emitting at, um, this is, can be either blue shifted if it's moving towards us or red shifted if it's moving away. Then we know if it's moving towards us or away from us. Oh, well. Coupled with this is the expansion of the universe. And it becomes tricky when you have local movements of galaxies moving towards us or away from us because that does happen on a local scale. And then on a much grander scale, you have this expansion of the whole universe, the space between galaxies stretching apart. And as you say, you do need some sort of backup standard candle. Large scales, we normally neglect these local random motions, and we say everything's moving away, and we can quite easily scale a redshift with a distance. Local scales, it's, it's a bit more tricky.
1: Tamela, Big question. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Ramsey Farragher, Tamela Massiel, and Hannah Critchlow. We're answering any science question you would like to send into the programme this week. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Ramsey, tell us about this Heartbleed computer bug that was picked up and announced in a big way, big splash this week. Yeah,
3: it's really serious. So there's this protocol on the internet called SSL, which stands for Secure Socket Layer. And this is a set of tools and rules for computers to talk to servers And exchange information in an encrypted way. So whenever you log into something like Facebook or Gmail or use your bank and use a username and a password, your computer and the server set up a secure link to exchange data in an encrypted way so no one can sniff and steal your data. Now, the problem is that a lot of websites are using OpenSSL, which is an open source version. In other words, it's free, but it's maintained by people who basically maintain it for fun to provide this technology for free. And there's a big question mark as to why very big, very rich organizations are using a free version of this very important tool. Because a few hours before midnight New Year's eve, two years ago, someone checked in some code to the code base, which had a bug in it, a very serious bug, which meant that The reason it's called Heartbleed is because you can have a heartbeat, which is like pinging the server. You can say, hello, are you still there? I want to talk to you. And you send a little packet of data and the server responds with the same packet. Now, the bug that was checked in by mistake was that the OpenSSL software did not do a proper check on this message. And if you sent a slightly illegal version of the message, it didn't check it properly. And what happened was the server responded not only with a little hello, yes, I can hear you, but it also provided you with 64 kilobytes of some chunk of the memory of the
1: server. Ouch. So potentially, if someone knew how to manipulate that, they could extract bits of the memory that contained sensitive data, enabling them to then compromise that supposedly secure connection.
3: Yes. So in a a very rapid nutshell, in the server's memory at the time, if you were logged in, if you were using the server yourself, then potentially your username, your password, the secret keys that are part of your encryption would all be getting leaked to this other person. And there was no limit on how many times you could send this malformed message. So Potentially, over the last two years, malicious people who knew about this could have been regularly copying out the memories of these servers and getting hold of usernames, passwords, secret keys, and the certificates which authenticate websites. So in other words, they could start then setting up fake versions of websites and you would log on to them thinking they were real and your browser and all the security systems would go, yeah, this certificate is correct. This is the right version of Facebook, but it's not. Now the big problem is this has been going on for two years and the big question is to how much damage there is. And so people should look at all of the things they use like Gmail, Facebook and so on. They should check when the
1: updates of those servers are being applied and they should then change their password. Ramsey Farragher, thank you very much. On the line, Stuart, hello.
5: Hello, how are you?
1: In good shape, thanks Stuart. What would you like us to talk about?
5: I'm uh, intrigued by gravity waves. The recent discovery of the uh, evidence for a gravity wave at the time of the Big Bang and I'm wondering what implications it might have for the future of physics and and, and that the study of um, the universe and the attempt to amalgamate the
1: two versions of um, physics. Tamila, what do you think?
4: Yeah, so you're alluding to the, um, the BICEP2 result, which is a telescope down in the South Pole run by the Harvard-Smithsonian Center, and they announced, as you say, these primordial gravitational waves that have been detected in the cosmic microwave background. And this is a signal that we theoretically expected to find, and people were looking for it, and sure enough, there it was. And the biggest result of that is really that our theory of inflation, this idea that the universe expanded massively very soon after the Big Bang, it's a strong confirmation of that theory. It's very difficult to imagine a different set of rules, different theory that allows the same sorts of gravitational waves and the patterns that we see in the, um, the background. So that's a big thing for cosmologists and definitely gives us a bit more information to play with about the beginning of the universe. In terms of the future for other gravitational wave detections, obviously this sort of thing will want to be followed up by other experiments and peer review. A lot of people are still really keen for a direct measurement, right? So this is what they just did, was looking out back to the furthest reaches of the universe and back in time, we would love to see a ripple in space-time, right, because of some very massive event that happened coming through Earth. And we'd love to see that detected, and we've got a couple of experiments. LIGO is the big one that's based in the U.S., and it's this interferometer that's based on the ground. It's got these lasers shining between very long arms distances, and it's waiting for a gravitational wave to pass through, and it'll just distort that light a bit and delay it slightly... You can imagine this is a really sensitive detector and requires a lot of fine-tuning and subtracting background noise. So that's something they haven't yet discovered anything with, but they're advancing it Um, next year. They're releasing advanced LIGO. LISA is a space-based version of that, and that may also launch in some form or another in a few decades. So a lot coming on board.
1: There you go, Stuart. Gravity waves it out for you. And thank you very much, Tamala, for the answer. Hannah, can you tell us, and you can help uh, Mfo Kugosi, who wants to know,
5: why do we laugh when we get tickled? Why is it funny? Tickling is a very, very serious topic, Chris. Scientists take it incredibly seriously. Recently, actually, scientists studied 30 volunteers in an MRI scanner to try and get to the bottom of this tickling phenomena of why we find it so hilarious and so entertaining. And it's something to do with us not expecting it. We're not predicting is going to happen. We don't, and we're not sure exactly how it's going to feel or how that person is going to be tickling us. So people were scanned in an MRI scanner whilst they were being tickled or they were being told a joke. And it turns out that both the Rolandic Opera column, I believe it's pronounced, an area of the brain that's involved in facial movements and emotional reactions lights up to both tickling and telling a joke. But then there's an extra area of the brain that lights up when people's feet are being tickled when their feet are poking out of the scanner. And that's the hypothalamus, which is interesting. Now, the hypothalamus is involved in regulating our feelings of hunger, tiredness and body temperature. And it's also involved in the flight or fight response. So if you're scared, you might want to fight with someone or run away. And now, producer for the show, Kate Lamble, if I threaten to tickle her, and apparently if her boyfriend does tickle her, she will literally thump <laughs> the person that 's tickling them, so that she seems to definitely have her uh, fight or flight reaction activated by tickling, so yeah, so tickling seems to evoke these feelings in people, and we 're trying to understand a little bit more about what happens in tickling. It seems to be an innate response, laughing to tickling, so um newborn babies, if they 're tickled by a parent with a very straight face on, they will still start giggling and laughing away. So it's something that we have evolved to do and we're still trying to understand it exactly. Uh,
1: Helen, there's a related thing from Adrian who says, why does my dog leg go berserk whenever I rub him on his tummy?
2: well i think you might have gathered from me earlier in the program i'm actually a cat person so i really don't know do cats do that
1: because you know what he's getting at when yeah. you rub a dog dog's tummy it, his leg starts point. to go
2: there is a point in a cat where you can get it to that back leg thing where it looks yeah. a bit what a is rabbit. that all about i don't know actually i really don't know sorry
1: Chris. <laughs> does anyone else know what this is all
3: about i always assumed you
1: were hitting a nerve that uh, you know like bashing your knee and making your your foot kick out. One theory is that this sort of reaction, if you look at where your tickly bits are, they're also your most vulnerable bits. And so some people have argued that it's a way of drawing your attention to where your vulnerable bits are so that when you're fighting you can defend yourself because you learn these various manoeuvres Mm -hmm. to avoid getting those bits exposed. And so if you make it fun, because when you're tickling someone and sort of going for the vulnerable bits, you learn to not make those bits accessible so that when you do need to do something that isn't play fighting, you know how to best defend those bits. I mean, it seems plausible, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd say so, especially lots of
3: litters of cats and dogs play fight all the way through their litter years and stuff. So it certainly seems
1: plausible. We're almost out of time, but we've got this one for here from Kitty. We can have a sort of show of hands on this. Does putting a teaspoon in the top of a bottle of champagne stop it going flat? Who ha- who believes that one? No, no one. I've one's never a- come
2: <laughs> across that actually. That's the first yeah, time I've ever heard. I People that. say it
1: stops it going flat, but it, it's not true. It's a myth. I'm is afraid, Kitty. It doesn't work.
3: Yes, yeah, the air still exposed in the uh, yeah. Champagne I mean, basically, no.
1: the gas under pressure dissolved can bubble out and escape, and the teaspoon does not make any difference. We've run out of time. Thank you very much to Helen Scales, to Ramsey Farragher, to Tamla Masil and to Hannah Critchlow. Have a very nice Easter. If you're in South Africa and you can come to the RAND show, come and see me and Hannah there next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the
0: STFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.